Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. So today, in the wake of the very distressing Kavanaugh confirmation, we thought it was an appropriate time to discuss the role of the Supreme Court and the judicial system generally uh, as constitutionally designed and as currently employed in our putative democratic republic. So we want to talk about the questions regarding the Supreme Court and whether it is supposed to be a neutral, uh, nonpartisan institution and branch, uh, to what degree that's naive, to what degree it is necessarily partisan, what the left should think about how to think of the court and uh, politics and law writ large, how the left should strategize to either pack the court or in relation to the court, basically, theoretically, how should we conceive of the Supreme Court and its politics? So uh, in light of these important questions and differing views from the left, we have a special guest joining us. Uh, Her name is Bajira McCorkle. She has taught in the past at Wesleyan University, at Columbia University. Uh, She's taught political theory, uh, any number of courses, and writes and thinks about the intersection of law and politics. So we are very, very happy to welcome her. And so let us both say welcome to Left Anchor, Bajira. Howdy. Thank you. Right. So, so Ryan, what, what, uh, what say you here? How, how should we jumpstart this conversation? Um, well, Supreme Court, I'm, ag- I'm against it. <laughs> Get rid of it. Um, no, I, I don't know. So I'm, I may be somewhat undecided on this, actually, about how precisely um, we should think about this. Uh, so, you know, the, the, you have, you know, basically the sort of onrushing possibility that, you know, the, the Supreme Court will be in the hands of five partisan hacks, just people who are like more or less, maybe not a hundred percent duplicitous in the way that they make their judgments. Like John Roberts did vote to uphold part of Obamacare, though not the whole thing. Um, but you know, for the most part, just, just doing completely partisan rulings. And that seems like totally objectionable. And one possible response to that is, um, you know, just say to admit, oh, the Supreme Court is a partisan institution. And so what you need to do is stick, stack it with your own type of hacks who just, uh, you know, make decisions based on gender bullshit, you know, whatever the most convincing sounding rationalization you can come up with to say that, you know, whatever is in your own partisan interests. Um, and then there's maybe a sort of like a, a, a middle ground, perhaps. Or maybe there's perhaps like two two other positions. And there's like this kind of classic like neutral to, to say the judiciary should just like more or less interpret the law. Like a, like a, this, I believe, is a sort of New Deal jurisprudence. A lot of like Hugo Black type of stuff in the 1930s and 1940s. Or just say like, let Congress rule. We're not here to decide these sorts of issues of like complicated policy and stuff like that. And then maybe there's kind of a hybrid of the of of all of those to, to to like sort of admitting the Supreme Court is political in some ways, but not maybe going all the way to say no. We just need to stack it with partisan stooges who will rule however we want. And I'm not sure exactly yet where I would land there. And, and I would add, so there's the kind of traditional liberal perspective, which is actually in keeping with what John Roberts said, uh, umpire, balls and strikes. The judicial court is neutral and has no partisan political affiliation. This is actually in keeping with certain constitutional principles, which is they're not supposed to have advisory opinions that they give on political issues, any number of things, right? There's this putative uh, nature of the court as supposedly apolitical, right? So there's that stance, which is we should protect this institution and make it apolitical. The lifetime appointments are supposed to be in service of this, et cetera, et cetera. So one response, as you say, is 
F it. It is definitely political, so we might as well try to pack it and put our hacks in the court and just seed the issue of whether it'll be political or not. It is political. Let's try to win this battle. And then lastly, there is an option that I don't know if you mentioned, but uh, there is the notion that we can try to take away power from the Supreme Court altogether, right? So we can strip, Congress can strip the scope of jurisdiction. We can have it not being able to rule on certain issues and just generally uh, undermine the power that the Supreme Court has. So that's yet another option. So what philosophically and strategically serves the West best is a question I think that um, I don't think anyone knows um, perfectly and, you know, kind of um, just in some brilliant foresight uh, knows what will work. But but this is a worthy issue of discussion because there's lots of different approaches within the left that uh, are worth considering. So I'm curious what uh, what our guest thinks of all this. Well, I wonder if it might be helpful to unpack a few th terms that we've been using. So when we say neutral or that the court is an umpire calling balls and strikes, that suggests that the court, um, it's something different than pure impartiality, which is normally how we talk about the court. Neutral, especially how we use that term today, suggests we give equal weight to two different, in, in our system, political parties. I think that's the wrong way to view even how liberals within the court view impartiality. Impartiality suggests that the law itself is shielded from politics in some sense. And I think maybe that's a more helpful rubric to start with, since that's typically how courts consider themselves. So maybe that's a way we can start to think about it is, to what extent, uh, obviously, it's a bit of a fiction that laws are uh, or laws and courts are apolitical, right? Um, we can't really say that they're a sacrosanct sphere that has been carved out purely for legality. I mean, I mean, someone will, people will try to make this argument, but I think, you know, in the wake of Kavanaugh, but it also, and many times prior, the American Supreme Court has not served that role within politics. So, so what do we mean if we say, okay, well, we acknowledge that there is a political bent or the court can be political, what then do we do with it, right? Because um, I think neutrality has never been the issue as opposed to saying that the court is somehow impartial. Okay, that's a great point. And so for me, what that raises is whether in fact, this legal fiction, which is okay, unlike in politics, where you can say, I'm voting for someone because of their ideology, because they represent my interests, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, the Supreme Court or the courts generally at that level have to justify their opinions in the language of constitutional law, which is to say that they couch it in some jurisprudence, right? Some kind of um, some kind of justification that is not just normative, uh, putatively, right? So, so for example, you know, you have originalism, which says, no, 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 I'm not ruling, right, on this issue because I'm conservative politically, but my judicial philosophy says that the original intent of the framers suggests that we should rule this way. And it just so happens, strangely, to align politically with the conservatives, right? So there is this kind of weird cloaking of partisanship in a jur jurisprudential uh, approach, um, but at least you have to jump through those hoops, yeah, and we want that, actually. If it becomes a purely sham court in which it's a sort of, a, it's, it's a purely politicized court, then that's an even bigger problem for us. I mean, I think in the U.S. we already face some degree of a legitimation crisis, and that would certainly up the stakes in terms of the legitimation crisis. Um, when you the populace no longer believes that institutions are doing the jobs that they are meant to do or the experts within those institutions are no longer acting in the interests of the public good, then that, then we face that real crisis of legitimation. Um, and I think the court certainly is in danger of having its legitimacy at least questioned, if not stripped, um, in the wake of, frankly, I mean, in the past, you know, from... Bush v. Gore onwards, there have been serious questions raised about the, the politicization of the court. Now, you know, Coops, what do you think about the fact that Roberts, in his Obamacare ruling, right, 
Uh, first of all, I think he was making clear this distinction because he wrote in his opinion uh, several times in almost like a ludicrous way. Uh, the court is not judging the wisdom of this policy, right, Obamacare, right? Look, the court is not weighing in on whether we should have this or not, <laughs> right? Like, that's for the people to decide. That's for Congress to decide. And he, like, you know, really, really was keen to establish that the court was not weighing in on the wisdom of the policy. But he's saying because Congress thought this was wise, we are not going to say it's invalid as something that the Congress can choose. And he found, look— uh, one of the Jewish, Jewish, uh, jurisprudential uh, philosophies is if you can find a way to legitimate um, a congressional law, you do it. And so he did a little move where he interpreted, right, um, he interpreted a penalty as a tax. And, and you know, the, the Congress has the ability to tax. So he found a way to legitimate most of Obamacare um, and, and made a point to say, I'm not saying this is a good idea. I'm just saying it was allowed, Right. And that seems to be somebody who is very concerned with having the court being nonpartisan in, a, in an important way. Or at least look like it is not entirely partisan, right? So the, that was an important decision for Roberts to some extent because had he not ruled in that way, it would already make very clear that the, the court was going to always divide along these political lines. Um, and to strike down the legislative initiative of the Obama era would have been a tremendous sort of political move by the court. But meanwhile, I think Kavanaugh was definitely confirmed with the hopes that he would do exactly that. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so could yeah, you yeah. Um, a few examples might sort of uh, bring this out, bring this dispute out a little bit. So... Um, you know that uh, so people are um, suggesting that this may be a return of the kind of gilded age progressive era court um, illegal doctrine um, in which you know the Supreme Court basically said that regulating the economy in a way aside from on behalf of the interests of capitalists was unconstitutional um, I've got a little little excerpt from uh, Richard uh, White book, which I have uh, cited before, but History of the Gilded Age, the Oxford History of the United States. He says, um, uh, taken as a whole, the decisions of the liberal judges, that's liberal, like classical liberal in this context, contributed to a remarkable expansion of government power in the 1890s and into the 20th century. The courts did so with and without the cooperation of Congress where legislative bodies legitimated their power by appealing to elections and the will of the people. The judges appealed to the Constitution, natural law, classical economics, the common law, and what judges decided to be the true interests of the people. Judges and courts became basic sites of state building, performing functions in the United States that bureaucracies undertook in other countries. So, for example, here, um, one... one, uh, decision was Santa Clara versus Southern Pacific in 1886, which established the idea of corporate uh, personhood at the Supreme Court level. And uh, White says that um, the wide array of interpretive tools employed by the court made some important decisions so opaque that it was hard to discern how the judges reached their conclusions. (laughs) Uh, in Santa Clara, the Supreme Court had, without discussion or argument, ruled that in regard to the assessment of taxes, the Equal Protection Clause applied to corporations in California. The decision itself, however, said nothing about the status of corporations as persons. That came in a preface to the decision by the court reporter, and it did not articulate what personhood might involve. <laughs> so that, you know, that that is like the maybe quintessential example of just you know legislating on and the bench like in a quite literal sense saying corporations are are now uh, legal persons and uh according to a decision which we are not even going to explain uh (laughs) what the basis is or what it means yeah i mean um, i think to that point the american system is very peculiar insofar as, you know, we could talk a lot about the the different ways in which the Constitution uh, calls for basically aristocratic elements to to 
bypass or suppress democratic elements. And the Supreme Court is definitely one of those political institutions that does that, right? Um, other countries with parliamentary systems don't necessarily have courts that legislate in the way that the court in the U.S. does. Yeah, and, and for example, I, I was just reading a, a speech by a, a, a lawyer in from the Nordics. Uh, yeah, Karen M. Brazilius... I'm probably mispronouncing that. Former justice of the Supreme Court of Norway. So apparently, uh, you know, the Nordics vary quite a, quite a lot about whether they have judicial review. Um, it is They do have it in Norway. They kind of don't have it in uh, Denmark and Sweden. But um, it's technically a possibility in Denmark, for example. But it is there's only ever been one instance of judicial review as of 2014, at least in Denmark exercised in 1999. It's the only example ever of this, <laughs> of this kind of, uh, uh, legal legislating. And it's not as though, you know, it's nothing you can point to in Denmark to be like, Oh, look at this horrible tyranny, which the parliament <laughs> has exercised on the people. Um, yeah, so that, you know, maybe maybe uh if you're if I guess if we're kind of looking at it in a consequentialist perspective and you're just sort of like what type of government we would like to have. Certainly it seems to me that that if you're looking at this from a left perspective, the the site of you know, it seems like you must have some kind of legal system, but the site of policy making should be in the legislature in the democratic part of the system. Um, the, the Supreme Court should not be involved in that um, at all. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the thing about that is, of course, right, the leftist response could be that majorities are often racist and terrible because the people whose rights we need to protect are in the minority in number, right, obviously, right? Um, now, the, the false narrative is that the court's like sui generis on their own stepped in to protect these minority groups. But in actuality, the courts that protected, say, um, civil rights for African-Americans, right, or any number of groups did so after the body politic had tremendous populist uprisings and activist protests um, pushing against the tyranny of the majority, right? Uh, in favor of protecting those oppressed groups. So so it's totally false that the courts just on their own stepped in to protect these minority groups just because they're kind of enlightened elites who saw the need for it. Uh, on the other hand, it, it is important to have some kind of function to stop the majority of people who might well be oppressive from like trotting upon the rights of minority groups. So it's not like there aren't reasons to have these protections in place, right? Yeah, go ahead, Bajira. Oh, sure. Um, so, so, I mean, it, there, I think we could uncouple that a little bit further, right? So what I think Ryan was talking about earlier was not necessarily that you couldn't sort of stop uh, the tyranny of majority or sort of, look, the reasons that, say, Brown v. Board was decided were on the basis of constitutional amendments, right? So, so we can certainly have that without having the courts be legislative institutions. And there, there certainly are also arguments that you could make that it would have been better for civil rights, it would have been better for privacy rights like abortion had they gone through a legislative process rather than a judicial one. Um, and I think that some of those arguments are sound and, and it seems like certainly in terms of the, when we think about democratic politics, you're right, there are sometimes concerns about the tyranny of the majority or the majority making poor, bad decisions um, that would somehow oppress particular groups. Um, but there are ways in which we could sort of maybe think about that and the court could still serve an objective function to, to stymie those initiatives, but we would not have such a, you know, look, from the history of the court 
has largely been one where it has worked in an anti-democratic fashion and in fact has stopped progressive or leftist initiatives. So the the court of the past, uh, you know, even 10, 15 years has also worked in that in that service of those ends. But yeah, I'm not sure that we can say that the court is the only way that we could preserve minority rights or something along those lines. The uh, a, a little more history maybe is is uh, could be useful here because um, I think you know liberals. Um, Sean McElwee had some polling on this that he that he uh, posted a while ago and said that you know liberals and conservatives both think that the Supreme Court is like uh, you know some magic genie. Some, so some some percentage of liberal, you know, it's like it's like sixty percent of them think it's like kind of a liberal institution or something like that, which uh-huh. is similar to the number of uh, Republicans who think that. Uh, but the uh, you know, you look at for example, like basically what what's the history of this of Supreme Court jurisprudence in, before the Civil War? Uh, it's entrenching slavery and uh, removing all civil rights from black people with uh, Dred Scott. Uh, what's the history of S- Supreme Court jurisprudence after the Civil War, uh, in between the Great Depression and the, or up to the Great Depression? Well, first it was overturning the Fourth Amendment, and then secondly it was legitimating Jim Crow uh, with Plessy versus Ferguson. <laughs> that, that was not awesome. And then, um, and then it was as we've just discussed, um, entrenching. Uh, economic like libertarianism right-wing economics in uh you know basically saying unions are illegal and anything that could um you know impede on corporate profits or shorten the working day or look ryan lochner very clearly says that if you want to work yourself to death and work 24 hours and kill yourself that is your constitutional right you can freely contract to kill yourself and uh the constitution protects the worker's right to self-immolate yes that is the law and then um (laughs) after fdr was elected uh he they they overturned a whole bunch of of uh you know stuff trying to well so this is interesting though they did that because he threatened to pack the fucking court and by the way you you um, hang on no no that was before so i'm talking about before 1935 they overturned a whole bunch of new deal stuff but then first hang on because you said sean mcelway so i can say fuck because (laughs) he likes to curse on podcasts and so i think we should both say fuck as much as possible (laughs) now and uh and that's just the way it's got to go. Those are those are norms, okay? Is, norms matter. Norm erosion. Alexios versus Cooper. Bajira is weighing in on the. Uh, no, I will not. <laughs> okay, so so fuck that, and um, tell us more about FDR in the court. Well, as you were saying, so pre pre nineteen thirty five, pre the chicken case, I forget what it's called. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, the the Supreme Court, which is sort of holdover from all these unswerving reactionaries who had been appointed by Hoover and Calvin Coolidge and uh, uh, what's his name um, before him, um, they uh, you know were ju- they were doing the the Lochner Doctrine shtick, which is to say that the government trying to save you know trying trying to do something about this cataclysmic economic crisis is unconstitutional. Blah blah blah, unconstitutional. But then FDR threatened to pack the court, and then they basically stopped doing that. And then because FDR had so many terms, he basically replaced almost the entire court. And so that was a period up through the mid-'70s of fairly liberal jurisprudence, fairly kind of left-leaning jurisprudence with Hugo Black and a variety of other people up through uh, Johnson. But uh, that's the only period. You know, from from Brown versus Board of Education and all those other civil rights, Roe versus Wade. That's the only period that the that Supreme Court has been consistently liberal, and you know even you know left left at all, and uh, you know since the seventies it's just been going right 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 and slowly basically rebuilding the Lochner Doctrine, which I think is basically where we're headed today. But Ryan, I see these videos of Ruth Bader Ginsburg doing push-ups and lifting weights, so that makes me think that the Supreme Court is our last hope. 
And that, here's up. another thing that <laughs> pisses me off, comma, damn it, period. Um, yeah, you, you, you know, Ru- Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been part of the rightward turn of the court. You know, right. she has Absolutely. been good on social issues, but her stuff on monopoly, on regulation. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah, awful. And and the fact that she didn't retire. I heard people, you know, I think Dahlia Lithwick wrote a thing about how it was like sexist to say she should retire while Obama was still president and they had the Senate majority leader. Fuck and that. frankly, that's that was just offensive and, and stupid. She's dumb. <laughs> um, Dahlia, irrespective of your gender, that was dumb. She better live through if she dies. If she dies, I'm going to kill her. <laughs> Oh, and we're so so. One more piece of history. I promise. I don't promise it's the last. It'll probably be more. Don't promise. But we spoke about the Lochner Doctrine, and so just just to be clear about that, that this is Lochner versus New York. Different from Lochness, not the Lochness monster. Lochner is different. (laughs) That's that's a whole other thing. Yeah, for clarity Um, purposes. So this cemented the the Gilded Age jurisprudence, um, which basically, you know. It was a judicial tyranny. It was a tyranny of that said you could, you know, you couldn't regulate the economy at all except for enforcing all the all the laws that underpin capitalism. This is 1905, and yeah, f- five judges said that in, in New York state law, so a state regulation requiring that uh, bakery employee hours yes. had to be less than ten hours a day and less than sixty hours a week violated the 14th amendment yeah no the let the process. bakers work themselves to death let god damn it those bakers they, want to work themselves to death they said they said that that the 14th amendment had an unwritten uh freedom of contract there are fucking not, scones to be made my friend it Do says not let the scones be unmade freedom of contract is not mentioned anywhere in the in the 14th amendment just as a <laughs> no definitely not yeah. um, that is that is not an originalist interpretation at all that uh, the the 14th amendment was about slavery my friends in case anyone was wondering not yeah. about big not, not about baked goods baked goods were not in the 14th amendment i'm pretty and sure and judicial review itself is also not in the constitution definitely never not. says nope. anywhere that the supreme court gets to overturn laws of congress never says doesn't, that nope. nope doesn't say that at all it's the whole thing i'm very originalist now <laughs> <laughs> like you like you go black your boy your boy you yeah. go black yeah yeah this is we're having fun. I'm having fun. Are you having fun? So this, I don't know. Maybe this is a good a good place to to um, move on to like kind of current how we should think about this personally because I've been kind of leaning. You know, there's questions about how do you you know should we pack the court or what? Um, but I think in terms of judicial philosophy, a pretty go. good working uh, definition of that for the left is to is to. S- maybe kind of sort of semi-appropriate the stop the judicial activism language of the of the conservatives to just say like yeah what 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 uh you know just justices should be involved in stuff like you know adjudicating like due process claims right um who who is allowed to vote um everyone and and um you know whether people have been discriminated against or or you know that that matter of thing and not overturning laws passed by congress that the policy making should be in the hands of the what do you think of that miss mccorkle here what do you think of the approach on the left to say hey we can be originalists too we can say judicial restraint don't be fucking reactionary activists i think that's fine but entirely insufficient because once the court has a 5-4 majority, which it has now, um, it won't, I think, necessarily... I mean, I think it's, it's a good line to sort of put forth, um, but maybe not sufficient to change how the court is operating. Um, so either we have to sort of use some stronger measures, like packing the court or changing... Uh, uh, the the lifetime appointment of 
Supreme Court members sort of limiting their terms in some way. Um, certainly we could pass legislation that amended the jurisdiction of the court that's within the purview of Congress to do that. Um, but I think that we have to think not only about sort of the line that we'll use in order to fight the activism of the court, because I'm not sure that that, that will be sufficient. Look, the Republicans have had done a very good job of changing the stakes of politics, right? They've been happy to, to, to sort of do things that seemed almost sort of suicidal or kamikaze in the past, and it has entirely changed the, the playing field for many issues that the court addresses. And I don't think that they're gonna stop doing that. So, so I think that would be insufficient in terms of how we think about it. But we also may wanna think about other uh, sort of institutional ways in which we can limit anti the anti-democratic mechanisms of the Constitution. Okay, so you think instead of, if I have you correctly, instead of trying to persuade the body politic and therefore put pressure on the court that the institution is supposed to be one that has judicial restraint and therefore is an activist, instead we should... Uh, we can do that, but it is insufficient, perhaps. Right. Yeah, well, so, I yeah. I think the, the yeah, cl- clearly the conservatives aren't going to care what you do. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, you know, what, what kind of philosophy we, we should try to enact. Um, but, yeah, certainly, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm partial to the idea of, uh, you know, packing the court or, or just reorganizing the court. I mean, Trump is getting so many justices on there and they're all of them just absolute yeah. freaks. Um, and they're all rapists. Ma- Wait, sorry. They could sue me for that, but no, I'm pretty sure Allegedly. they're all rapists. Allegedly, Allegedly rapists. They're, but they're, the, they, um, they're all also homophobic. Wait, what? No, no. The, the thing is though that we can't forget. It's not just the Supreme court. Trump has basically been signing off on circuit court judges like their candy. Like Obama would <laughs> take like a thorough process to determine if a, if a it judge take should be months, months, just like, oh, well, we need to find out if this is a legitimate candidate who should actually be competent enough to serve. And, and Trump is like, I don't know. You like the guy? OK, put him in. Yeah. And, and like. The rapidity, look, Trump is grossly incompetent in so many ways, but the one area that is well-documented he's done a good job at for uh, partisan reasons, he's just been, like, granting circuit court judges to be, like, appointed and confirmed left and right, like, at a radical rate. So we, we can't we can't underappreciate, I think, how significant that is, right? Yeah, I mean, it could be a real generational thing, Um and you could, you know, you could just uh, completely reorganize the entire federal court system, just fire everyone and hire all new people. But yeah, more, I mean, more realistically, you could add some more circuits, you know, the, the supposedly federal judges are pretty overburdened. And you could say, yeah, term limits for for um, judges, uh, justices on the Supreme Court, if they had 18 year terms, and you'd have two of them come up uh, every um Two years. Every two years, yeah, that's, and and that's uh, Jedediah Purdy, right? Yeah, that's right, and um, he may not have come up with that, but it, it, what it what that would do is that would I think remove a lot of the super high stakes thinking around this to, to be like if you know the president always gets two, and you just sort of like, right. you know, push make make it a little bit uh, less high stakes. Well, yeah, try try to defuse some of this like in crazy partisanship around it to just to where you're like going younger and younger justices who are ever more crazy and abusive, you know, to where it's like heritage fund, uh, interns who've been just pulled right out of the cloning tank. Um, (laughs) and, uh, more towards the thing where it's like, okay, well, what you need to do is win the election, which, you know, can we talk for a moment about, so, I'm I'm curious about the reasons that Kavanaugh and look, not only was he partisan because he's clearly a, a Bush nepotism pick who was a frat boy that raped women, but also he specifically was someone who called out the 
weird conspiracy of like the Clintons as something that he was fighting against in, in this confirmation hearing, like clearly partisan, like clearly just like talking points, the Republican party, um, totally feeding into the base temperament, not one of a, of a justice in, in the normal kind of evaluation of what a justice should be the opposite of, you know, Roberts, who's like balls and strikes. What do I know? I, there at least the pretense of, Oh, I don't know what my opinions would be on Roe v. Wade. Who knows? Right? Like nonsense, of course, but at least the pretense is there. Now, Gorsuch was more in line with Roberts, you know, clearly an originalist, clearly, you know, conservative and judicial philosophy, but sailed through, he's not a rapist, of course, uh, but also not clearly partisan in his affect and his rhetoric. Do we care? Is this an important distinction? Is, is the question I want to ask. So Gorsuch, like Clarence Thomas, like Alito, like Roberts, is going to, for the most part, rule in favor uh, of those kinds of laws that help cement uh, conservative political ideology. Why do we give a shit that Kavanaugh will do that, but is also a rapist who seems partisan? Does that, should that matter at all? I think it does matter insofar as we actually want a legal fiction or an aspirational sort of idea that the courts are impartial, right? So as soon as the courts become overtly partisan, and it's not to say that they haven't been overtly partisan. Bush v. Gore is a clear example of the Supreme Court acting in an overtly partisan manner. But as soon as we have that sort of overt partisanship, which you'll, you'll notice Kavanaugh did not do in his first appearance before the, the Judicial Committee, and I think, you know, he very much had the Roberts and Gorsuch sort of role. And then once it became apparent that his nomination had some chance of being sunk by all of the allegations of assault, um, he then took a very partisan sort of uh, tactic in, in front of the Judiciary Committee. And I think he did that purposely because he thought Trump would like it. Right. Um, I think he did that because that was the way to ensure his nomination would continue to proceed. Yeah. And he was also just tapping into the very I don't know if he meant to do it or not, but he just really expertly tapped into the conservative grievance complex, you know, and it became about we have to nominate this guy because he's so horrible. And, and they just <laughs> marinated yeah. in their victimhood. Who cares victimhood. if he committed sexual assault? He should it's, still can, be can we talk about? Can we Not talk, only do we have to nominate I know we we've to talked about this, Coops. I know we talked about this before. Can we talk about this again? That, that there's something so sick and perverse about what animates the Republican base right these days that I think it's so important to talk about. And, and you're right. The, gre- like, the appropriation of victimhood and the grievance... Um, culture within the GOP is so pernicious within culture and society today. It, it's this, this like bizarre thing that the people with the actual power now, maybe some of the base, right. Don't have the, the economic power. Right. But there is this weird thing that like, if anyone calls out anybody who traditionally has hierarchical power because of their race, because of their gender, because of their status, that threat, right, should animate a tremendous backlash to reaffirm that, no, 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 this should go unchallenged. Fuck anyone, right, in Sean McAuley's uh, words. Fuck anyone who dares threaten the hegemony, right, of my race, of my gender, of my class status. Um, and God damn it, if we can't all get on board with not letting oppressed people challenge us in our power, right? Isn't that just a beautifully clear, bright line rule that seems to run through the GOP's base these days? Yeah, there, there's there's a big, um, I think as uh, I've seen other people call it uh, res, resentiment. I don't know how you pronounce yeah. that exactly, but yep. yeah. Nietzsche. Yeah, Nietzsche. Um, and and the sort of um, um, the w- weird combination of resentment, defensiveness, and um, you know appropriation of victimhood that that characterize how people uh, uh, 
it talked about Sarah Palin a lot. Um, I there's a there's a from many years ago there's a Matt Iglesias post about this that I remember and he and he says uh, you know trigger warning Matt Iglesias <laughs> the the central thing here isn't the vanishing of truth as a criteria so much as it is a disappearance of any kind of meaningful p- political agenda at all. Instead, there's this love of Palin as a kind of martyr tormentor figure who exists to drive liberals batty and be the subject of our putatively unfair persecution with nonsensical defenses of her becoming all the more meritorious for the fact that they drive liberals (laughs) even battier. And that was the Kavanaugh phenomenon to an absolute T. Every one of those, these these sweating hogs were just working themselves <laughs> up into a froth. I mean, Eric Erickson probably had 17 micro strokes during the Kavanaugh confirmation because he got so furious about this. And he was furious, I think, because they have internalized the sort of status hierarchy of and, and value set of liberals and yet are unable to get the kind of respect that they think they deserve from the, you know, electoral victories and political power, whatever. It's just this, like, incredible sensitivity to being judged that makes people unable to, um, you know, seriously look at someone who is, I would say, by any reasonable uh, view, totally unqualified to be on the Supreme Court. Look, Ryan, accusing people of racism is worse than actual racism. Okay, just so you know. Uh, Accusing people of sexual assault is worse than actual sexual assault. Okay. Don't you know what happens to someone's reputation when you actually allege people of things? Don't you realize that this discourse over who is doing what wrong, like, it's just nonsense, okay? We all just need to let be what is and stop accusing people of things. That's the true. <laughs> Look, this country is divided over people being called out for their racism and misogyny. All right. If people would just allow the racism and misogyny to uh, <laughs> reign, then there'd be no divisiveness. We would just allow the abusers to abuse and everything be fine. Okay. It's this challenging of uh, the terrible people that is at the root of our disagreements and problems. That's, that's the thing. Republican Party line. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, but but um, yeah, back to the, to the Supreme Court. I I uh, I guess maybe kind of like summing up my general um, sense on this and on like the legal system in general. I, I definitely agree with you, Bajira, that there uh, there. There needs to be some sort of fa- certainly a facade of of objectivity is is better than just like raw force where it's like you know like every decision is just like the finding on behalf of the party and then the listing of each political yeah. affiliation of each judge be- beneath it you know like I think that really kind of has some you know kind of like a mask can distort the image of a face and stuff. Yeah, so then we have judicial rule by decree, right? Um, which we we certainly we want rule of law norms that 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 protect us from the that kind of arbitrary uh, partisan political decision making. Yeah. yeah. So so the thing the thing that I would say right is that in order to have a reactionary like Scalia have such influence, he needs to be a fucking genius. And he was, right? So he had to do crazy things to justify opinions that actually held sway over the court. You know, in Oregon v. Smith, right, where he ruled against um, indigenous peoples who uh, smoked peyote as part of their right religion. And so it would you would think, have the free exercise of religion clause protect them against being fired and would allow them to collect unemployment benefits because they were fired for smoking peyote uh, in line with their religion. He had to jump through ridiculous rhetorical hoops in order to create hybrid rights and to justify like, oh, well, some constitutional rights are subordinate to other rights in these instances, and if there's a generally applicable criminal law, then that means that this constitutional protection doesn't apply. You know, like, 
it took real, real hard work for him to try to invalidate um, the rights of those people who should have been protected, of course. Um, if it was just like a simple 5-4 majority and Scalia's like, yeah, fuck these guys. Let's, like, let's you know, throw them in jail and strip away their rights to receive unemployment benefits. That would have been terrible. Like It was better that we had to force him to jump through ridiculous rhetorical hoops and create a ridiculous judicial opinion to justify it. Um, because that won't stand up over time um, because there are these norms that the justices respect each other and have to have a pretense of persuasive argument, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and when, you know, when it's when you're talking about, like, freedom of the press, freedom of, you know, uh, against unreasonable search and seizure, uh, you know, requiring police to get a warrant before they... All that type of thing, I think, is much more amenable to, uh, y- you know, the, the, just, the, the justice system serving its actual purpose as... Um, the you know protector of people's democratic liberties, rather than having it serve as what essentially becomes like a house of lords that's even smaller and less democratic than uh, right. uh, the Senate and yeah. um, and and with less interesting accents. Yeah, yeah, there's um, there's a little there's a. Uh, from a part of a letter for, from Thomas Jefferson to William C. Jarvis uh, from 1820. So l- little known fact that when Marbury versus Madison was decided, which established judicial review, and basically John Marshall just pulled it directly out of his ass, just straight up he's, invented he's it. He's a badass, though. Let's be honest. He was a badass. He, it was a very, very, white, very subtle decision, this certainly. But, um, yeah, Jefferson says... Uh, to consider the judges as the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions is a very dangerous doctrine indeed, and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. Mm-hmm. Our judges are as honest as other men and not more so. They have, with others, the same passions for party, for power, and for the privilege of their core. Their maxim is boni judicis est ampliare jurisdictionum. Uh, which I, me on. Stop it. I guess means good justice is broad jurisdiction and the, their power, the more, uh, their power is the more dangerous as they are in office for life and not responsible as the other functionaries are to the elective control. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, this is definitely a dispute that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the, the, the country, you know, and it's, it's never been the case that, you know, just, just the, the, whatever, absolute lunatics happen to constitute a majority (laughs) on the Supreme Court get to just decide whatever they want. That's never been sort of consensus position. No, no. And look, let's be honest that the founders weren't total morons. They they thought that the Supreme Court was the least powerful of the three branches, right? They thought that the Hamilton in Federalist number 78 writes that the judicial branch is the least powerful because it has neither the sword nor the purse, right? It doesn't have the military. It doesn't have money. It has nothing but judgment, right? And this, of course, leads to people like uh, President Andrew Jackson saying, okay, you know, you've made the ruling, now enforce it, which, of course, it can't do. And and so there is a lot of truth to that, right? Yeah. Um, Lincoln actually issued an arrest warrant for Roger B. Taney when he... Yeah, uh, yeah. that motherfucker, Taney. It was not executed, but when Taney tried to... I forget what he was doing exactly, but... Um, I think he was uh, interfering with this military commission. Um, yeah, Lincoln ignored the decision and uh, and uh, called for him to be arrested. This um, foreshadows another conversation in podcast episode on Carl Schmidt we should have about sovereignty. But yeah, that's just a little tease you're gonna get. A little tease. Tanny the ex parte merryman. Yeah. Oh, so, oh, oh, oh. Um, one of the M's. I'm reading from, Wik- reading from Wikipedia here. After Lincoln suspended the writ don't, of habeas and, corpus that, Ryan. in parts of Maryland, Taney ruled as circuit judge in ex parte Merriman that only Congress had the power to take the action. Lincoln ignored the court's order, issued an arrest warrant for Taney, though the warrant was never carried out, and continued to have arrests made without the privilege of the writ. 
Um, yeah. Mm. Uh, <laughs> this is the same guy who wrote the Dred Scott decision, by the way. Indeed. Um, so it's full of it, full of it, as we yep. would say. Uh, at any rate, but I think that I, I have, my wit is exhausted on this topic. Do you have any more (laughs) uh, comments? Last thoughts, uh, what's the way forward? Last, last hope for the last. You know, I think we have to do some serious rethinking about what we want our democratic institutions and our political institutions, because some of them currently are quite anti-democratic, to look like. Um, And that might mean that, you know, in in a long-term way, we think about amendments to the Constitution. Um, And that now we have historically thought that that is a near impossible, at least from the 20th century, mid 20th century onward, a near impossible process. But maybe that's something we have to seriously consider. What should we do as an amendment? What would be the amendment, do you think? I think there are a number of amendments we could think about in terms of getting rid of the Electoral College, certainly um, changing maybe the juris... Well, we don't need an amendment to do that, but we might try to use an amendment to confine the power of the court. Um, I think there are a lot of ways in which we can think about it, but to recognize that the Supreme Court is an anti-democratic institution um, and that it is political um, is an important recognition point for the left because I think for too long we've thought of the court as the last bastion of rights, whether they're privacy rights, civil rights, et cetera, Um, and that, that shouldn't be the way in which we think about the court, but then we should do both legislatively and otherwise things to if we can change the way the court works and i would add just at the end that the extent to which the court uh is activist often goes hand in hand with the populace and the politics of the body politic so if the body politic is strong right so if there isn't a lot of slack as our our good friend and colleague david cod would would discuss but indeed, there is a highly active citizenry that uh, is, you know, democratically activated in creating laws, local, state, and federal, right? Um, the Supreme Court is going to be conservative in the sense of not abrogating and going against that democratic will. Uh, I think it is very, very unlikely that if you have a highly activated populace, the Supreme Court will do a lot of damage. Um, because not only they, but the the parties that are represented by those um, partisan justices will feel the blowback. Um, as usual, even in this constitutional system that we have, the, the power is with the people if they desire to, um, to use it. Sounds, sounds good to me. <laughs> all right well thanks everybody for for listening to this episode yeah and um, thanks Vajira for coming on oh, thanks for having me see y'all next time bye bye